This is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. This morning, we're going to have a chance to talk about finding your place on the wall at Woodland Hills Family Church. And uh, I, I want to go to a passage which I believe helps us a lot, but we're going to get there in just a minute. But the thing I want to talk to you about today is the power of teamwork, the power of community, and how that is used all throughout the Scripture. We're going to talk about the power of working together to accomplish a really significant task. I love the stories that are out there about things that were done because of incredible teams. There are some stories in history as you go back through them and you look at how teamwork was used. And we could talk about stories like Dunkirk and others. But I love the stories about Apollo 11. That's an incredible story because there were over 400,000 people that helped us get to the moon July 30th, 1969. Most of you were not alive then, but some of you were, and you watched that, and you can think back, and you actually remember it. I can remember it crystal clear. It was such an amazing time. Maybe one of my favorite stories about teamwork is actually on D-Day, June 6, 1944. And I want to guess that a lot of you knew the date of D-Day before I even shared that date, because that actually involved over a million people, and they basically had to keep it a secret. I mean, that's teamwork, right? It's incredible because as you talk about the fact that, you know, we had all of these troops, it was incredible because by the end of June, we had more than 850,000 troops in France. There were over 148,000 vehicles. You think about just to get them there, that's incredible. 570,000 tons of supplies. It's an absolutely amazing feat. And we know that while the end of the war was not yet there, we practically won the war on D-Day, which we'll come back at the very end and talk a little bit more about that. So teamwork is a powerful thing. And we're going to look at teamwork from the book of Nehemiah, which I think tells us more about teamwork, maybe than actually any other book, book in the Bible outside of, of the gospel. So you know what, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Nehemiah. Now, if you can't find Nehemiah, don't be embarrassed. I've pastored for 43 years. I still can't find Nehemiah. So listen, find, find Psalms. That, that's a big one in the middle. And then go backwards. Before Psalms is Job. Before Job is Esther. Before Esther, you'll find Nehemiah. And it's tucked in there. So we're going to walk through and we're going to talk about, this is, might make you nervous, but hang in there. We're going to talk about the nine marks of gospel teamwork. Now, I know you think nine points, how is that possible? We're going to go through some of them very, very, very quickly, but trust me, we will get through all nine. And so if you have your Bibles, let's start off in chapter one. But first of all, just, just a brief context here. And so Nehemiah is a great story of going back to, to build up the walls of Jerusalem and the gates because they had all been absolutely wiped out because in 586, Jerusalem is thriving, they think everything is fine, but then the Babylonians come and they wipe out Jerusalem. They burn down the, you know, I mean like the gates, they tear down the walls, and then they take the Jews into captivity. So they're in exile. Then in 516 BC, the Persians come and they wipe out those folks actually in Babylon, and so now the Persians are in charge. And God moves the heart of the Persian king and he says, you know what, I want to send a group back because they need to rebuild the temple, the gates, and the walls. So he sends back a guy named 
Zerubbabel. If you have a child this year, I encourage you. That's a great name, Zerubbabel. So he sends back Zerubbabel, and, and, and they get a lot of work done. And they get the temple rebuilt, so that's a really good start. But they work on the gates and on the walls, and they just can't get it done. So after decades and decades of trying to get it done, it can't happen, they think, you know what we need to do? We need to send back a pastor. So Ezra goes back, and he leads another group, and Ezra works to rebuild the walls and get all these things done. And Ezra gets some things accomplished, but he doesn't get the walls rebuilt. And so the people are still very discouraged, and finally they say, okay, Nehemiah, why, why don't you go back? Nehemiah is a layperson. He's the cupbearer to the most powerful king in the entire world. He lives on, uh, I mean, he lives in this palace in Susa, which is on the Persian Gulf. He has a very cushy life. He gets to eat the best food, drink the best wine. He's in this incredible place, but his heart is in Jerusalem. His heart is a thousand miles away. And so he gets reports about the fact that things are not going well, so he begins to take action. And so we begin to go through these nine points, but the first one is, is actually, you know, I'm going to get you right there in chapter one, and it is the fact that there is prayer and the corporate confession of sin. So chapter one, starting off in verse four, it says this, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, we have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commandments, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Wow. He's clearly powerfully, powerfully motivated here because at the very start it says, you know what? God, God, you're great. That's God's position. God, you're awesome. That's God's power. You keep your covenant of love. That's God's promises. Listen, Nehemiah is a doer. I mean, he's going to get the job done. And the thing that makes this such an amazing story is he teaches us lessons about management and teamwork because what has failed decade after decade after decade, he will accomplish in 52 days. In 52 days, they're going to get the gates up and the walls completely rebuilt. But don't miss this. Nine times in the story about Nehemiah, we read that Nehemiah stops and he spends time praying. Nine times. So we know that he's a man of prayer. I love the fact that he prays and he confesses sin. Now, here's a key point. Nehemiah is confessing the sin that brought the wall down. The wall's been down for over 100 years. I mean, these things have been going on and on and on for all these decades after decades. And yet he confesses these sins. And the way that he confesses it is still very powerful because he says, Lord, I confess the sins that we Israelites including myself and my father's family, we have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commandments. Listen, when he confessed his sin, he says, we. He wasn't even alive when these sins are committed. But he understands that as a Jew, that this is the part of his legacy. And so he corporately confesses these things. I think that so often in the church, we have lost the power of corporate confession. It's good to confess our sins. It's the right thing to do. We should confess our sins. 
but we should also corporately confess our sins. Do you ever spend time in prayer and say, God, I pray for the sins of this church that you would be gracious and forgive us. Father, I confess the sins of Branson. I confess the sins of Missouri. I confess the sins of the USA. I confess the sins of the American church. Father, we have not followed you as we should. I pray that you would be gracious to us. Do you ever do corporate confession? That is such a huge part of it. And you see, there's a picture here of, Lord, I wanna confess these things, but I also wanna claim your promises. We need, we need to be people that claim the promises of God. It's interesting because I'll speak with Christians and I'll hear them say, you know what, I'm trying to walk with the Lord, but to be completely honest, I'm a little bit angry right now towards God. And I'll ask them, help me understand what, what you're angry about. Well, my, my mom passed away and she was in a lot of pain before she passed away. My son had a car accident, it was a terrible car accident. I'm being attacked on social media and I'm, I just feel like that should not be happening. I have cancer and I just feel like if God was with me, that just would not be happening. Listen, don't hold God in contempt for promises that he never made. God never promised any of those things. God didn't promise that there wouldn't be tragedy in life. He didn't promise that there wouldn't be cancer. He didn't promise that your kids would all love Jesus. He didn't promise that your spouse would love Jesus. He didn't promise that you would not have times in life of unemployment. He didn't promise those things. So don't be angry with God for not keeping promises that he never made. God has made us promises in scripture. How many promises in scripture? 7,464. That's how many promises there are in scripture. God promised, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. God promised us, when you go through the deepest, darkest valley of life, I will be with you. Claim the promises that God has given us. Now listen, as we talk about Nehemiah, don't, don't be confused in this, because if you're inspired by Nehemiah, great. But if you're over-inspired, it can be a problem because, because Nehemiah is a signpost pointing ultimately to Jesus. Because Jesus left his kingdom, he left his place with God the Father, and he came to earth, not at the risk of his life like Nehemiah, he came at the cost of his life. So understand that everything that we'll talk about this morning, as we'll see at the end, it ultimately points us to Jesus. Number two. It's awesome to be a part of a community. I love the fact that if you, if, if you go through chapter three, which a lot of people skip over chapter three because it's one of those chapters, it's a lot of these names and you're thinking, okay, I'm trying to go through and read everything in the Bible and I came to Nehemiah three and I thought, all these names I can't pronounce, I'm just gonna skip over them. But there's these names that are listed to remind us that it is so awesome to be a part of a community. We absolutely need that. Because Nehemiah, again, is a brilliant manager. So this project has failed for all of these years, and he says this, you know what? We're going to do this in a very different way. We're one big team, but we're also going to break up into 41 teams. Now, the walls are about eight to, you know, like eight to 10 feet thick. They're about two and a half miles around Jerusalem. And he says, we're going to just split up into 41 different teams. 
and we're gonna create some ownership. So you're gonna work on the part of the wall that's not that far away from where you live. And we're gonna create some teams of, hey, this team's gonna be like a bunch of dads and daughters, and this team is gonna be a bunch of the metal workers, and this team is gonna be the perfume makers. It's incredible how he creates these teams because it's awesome to be a part of a team and a community. You were created for community. You were not created for isolation. Here's something we all need to hear. Social media does not count as community. Your friends, on, your friends on TikTok and Thread and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and on and on and on, those aren't your friends. That's not your community. So don't say, well, you know what, I've got community. It's my social media community. Social media is where community goes to die. It's not real community. We need people, we need friends that can reach out, touch us, hold our hands, walk with us, be there for us. But it's so great that we are called to be a part of a family. We're absolutely called to be a part of a team. Number three, see, we're going kind of quick. You're starting to feel like, okay, I think that we can make it here. No job is beneath servant leaders. I love this passage in chapter three and verse one. It says this, Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and they rebuilt the sheep gate. How many high priests are there? There's one. There's one high priest. This is like the spiritual leader of all of the Jews. Now, if you were the spiritual leader of all the Jews, don't you think that your job should be to walk around and just say, you're doing great, hey, great job. Let me pat you on the back. That's not what he does. The high priest rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work. You know what that means? No matter who you are, no matter what role you have, you still need to be able to do work. I love the fact that Ted and the pastors at this church, they will roll up their sleeves and get, they'll work. They're not just saying, I want you all to do this work. They're going to do the work as well. There's humility in that. They're saying, you know what? No matter where God has called me, I realize that God wants me to work. Such a powerful passage. Number four. Nobody has the right to be an antagonist. Now, this passage is truly one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. You're going to think I'm exaggerating that that's an overstatement, but it's absolutely true because I love this passage. It says this. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work underneath their supervisors. And then the verse that might be my favorite verse in Scripture really says this. The Jeshnagate was repaired by Judiah, son of Pesha, and Meshulam, son of Beshoda. They laid its beams, put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Wow! Is that not incredible? I love that verse. That verse speaks to me. I mean, I love it. Why? I love that verse because of what it doesn't say. Because verse 5 said that there was this team of Tekoites, but their nobles, a certain part of the team, just said, you know what, we don't wanna do this. We're not gonna work, we're not gonna be involved in this. I love the fact that verse six does not say, and so there was this little group of people that were discontent, so Nehemiah shut down the entire project. And he formed a special committee to investigate why these people were so upset, and did they not like the you know, brick color? Did they not like the way it was being, built and so everything shut down because they wanted to make sure everybody was happy. That's not what it says. It's almost like he says, hey, you know what? You're an antagonist. You're not going to dictate the agenda for this project. 
I've got 40 and a half teams that are excited about this project. I've got a half a team that is not excited. That half a team is not going to set the agenda. God does not want antagonists to set the agenda for the local church. Man, if I could preach one message to pastors around the country, that's it. Don't let the antagonists set the agenda for your church. And you know antagonists, right? I mean, you walk into church and there might be some here for all I know. It's like they have this little tube and they just stick it on you. They just suck the joy right out of you. It's like, oh my gosh, every time I see that person, it's just, it's just terrible. You know what? If, if I'm convinced that there's an antagonist, I'm convinced that they know the Lord, but they're just, unha- for some reason, they're just unhappy. I pray a very consistent prayer, just a very consistent prayer. Lord, take them home. Listen, you, you might think that that's cruel. That's not cruel. They'll be happier, right? I'll be happier. Probably their spouse will be happier. Their neighbors will be. It's a win-win all the way around. Here's what you need to hear. No amount of money that you give this church buys you the right to be an antagonist. No amount of time that you volunteer to this church has earned you the right to be an antagonist. You might be saying, I'm not even sure if I am an antagonist. Maybe that's me. Because the antagonists are always waving the red flag. They never give anybody just the basic benefit of the doubt. They're angry. They're loud. They always have an agenda. They're always argumentative. If that's you, stop it. Don't be the antagonist. Understand what God is doing and say, God, I wanna be, be a part of what you're doing. I don't wanna be the one who's trying to scream out there and say. Now, I also talk to people oftentimes who say, well, you know what, it's interesting because I don't think I used to be an antagonist. I think I've become more and more of just like an antagonist lately. And the thing I hear from them, it's just such a common thread. I think that we have raised up a large generation of people in the church who have been functionally discipled by cable news. And if you're being functionally discipled by cable news, you're gonna naturally become an antagonist. Because you think, okay, I wanna come here, I wanna be very involved in this church, I wanna be involved in a small group and I wanna give some time every week. So I might be here at the church for six, eight, you know, I'm like hours a week, I wanna be very committed here. But you go home and you watch cable news for 25 hours a week. And that's gonna functionally, practically disciple you. Maybe you need to back off of that and find other ways to spend your time. But don't be an antagonist. That's not what God has for you. and That's not the role that God has for you in this church. Number five, leadership is not dictated by the prestige of the job. You see, there's 10 gates all the way around the city. You know, you've got the Sheep Gate, which is right there at the very top. It's right by the big temple. It's very prestigious. And then you go around, you have the Valley Gate, the Fish Gate, the Horse Gate, the Water Gate. There really is a Water Gate. That's not a joke. And you go all the way around. And you come to the very south of the city, and you have the Dung Gate. And I love this passage. It says this. 
The Dungate was repaired by Balkai, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Karim. He rebuilt and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Beth Karim is very important because it's the highest point in all of Jerusalem, which means if there's a battle, that's where you're going to fight from. Very strategic. So Malchijah, his dad is like the mayor of this district. I love the fact that he does not say, whoa, 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 Dungate? I don't think so. Do you know who my father is? My family's kind of a big deal. I, you know what? I want the horse gate. I want the valley gate. I want the fish gate. I want, so, I want the east gate. I want something else. I'm not going to do the Dungate. That's not what he says. I love the fact that, you know, he says, you know what? Okay, if this is what I'm assigned, this is, well, the, well, the, 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 this is my job. Every church has got a lot of different jobs. Some jobs might be sheep gate jobs. Some jobs might be dung gate jobs. We need to be willing to do whatever God calls us to do, wherever God calls us. You might think, well, I want to be a teacher, but they want me to be a parking lot attendant. Serve with all your heart as a parking lot attendant. There are people right now in the nursery caring for little kids. It is literally a dung gate job, right? Maybe that's what God has called you to. But no matter where God has called you, be willing to serve. I love the fact that Malchijah, I can't wait to meet this guy one day. Even though he was called to work on the Dungate, I want to do it. Because every church, every team needs people willing to do the Dungate jobs. Let's go on. Number six, in all you do, serve with zeal. I love this passage in chapter 3 and verse 20. It's... Here's what it says. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabi, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Elisha, the high priest. So you, you have Nehemiah, and he walks around, and he writes down these names. He writes down 80 names just in chapter 3. This, you know, Bill is doing this work on the wall next to Steve. Okay, Steve is doing work next to Carl, and Carl is working next to Mary, and Mary's working next to... Baruch, who is zealously working. He's the only name that has a qualifier like that. Of all the names in chapter 3, there's only one name that has a qualifier, and it's he's zealously worked. Now, what is Baruch doing to get Nehemiah to notice that he works with zeal? Gosh, I don't know. I can't wait to find out one day. I mean, like, is he singing? Is he humming? Does he just have a big smile on his face? I don't know what. But there's something that he's doing that says, you know what, even though this is menial labor, I'm going to work at it with my whole heart. I mean, even though I'm just, you know, putting stone and bricks and some wood on place, I want to do this with my whole heart, with zeal. Now, this might bring the whole service down this morning, but I just need to say, in three weeks, it's going to be about time to go back to school. I'm sorry. It's going to happen eventually. And I've got five kids, so I've had a lot of first days of school. I've had a lot of days where you go and there's, you know, 1,500 sheets to sign up. And if you want to do this over here for, for teacher appreciation, and if you want to be in charge of this party, and then here's all the forms as far as field trips. And I remember years ago that I was going through the field trip forms, and I saw that there was a field trip to watch them build the Grand Prix car up in Kansas City. I'm like, Put my name on that list. That, that's my kind of field trip. That'll be awesome. So I took all the kids and we went them to, we, just to watch them build the Grand Prix car. I mean, from start to finish. I mean, the mold of the metal and then everything is they, 
begin to drop in, you know, all the components and they drop in the seats and they drop in the engine and they, I mean, it's just incredible. It's this line that goes over a mile and you, and you just walk this line and you watch them build a car from start to finish. I absolutely loved it. The kids might've gotten a little bit bored after a while because you know, you just, okay, they're dropping in the engine, that guy connects the engine, that guy puts, you know, after a while. But we came to the guy that puts the little Grand Prix logo on the right front of the car. And so it's like, okay, we're gonna watch this guy put, put on the Grand Prix logo. And he has this giant machine and he's got these grips and this is exactly what happens. The car comes by and he has this big, big old machine and he goes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just looked around like, what, what just happened? So there's a guy that's you know, next to him over there. So I walk over and I said, that was just for the kids, right? And he said, oh, I wish it was just for the kids. <laughs> he said, every car, every day. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, no. Every car, every day. So we just stood there and watched him. And as the car came, he did the same thing over and over again. So at the end of the day, talk with the kids. Hey, kids, let's go through the whole day. Did anybody stand out to you? Of course somebody stood out. The guy that put the logo on the right front of the car. Why? Because he was so zealous about his job. He did it with zeal. There was so much passion and excitement. That's Baruch. He says, you know what? I've been called by God to do this job, and I want to do this job with everything I have. I want to put my whole self into it. I love that. Number seven. Opposition and pain does not mean that God is not in the project, right? It doesn't mean that God is not in the project because at the end of chapter three and chapter four, five and six, there's gonna be three guys, Sanballat, Geshem and Tobiah that are gonna come and they're gonna make tremendous trouble. I mean, they're gonna threaten Nehemiah, they're gonna threaten the whole project, they're gonna threaten to bring, just to bring everything down. The fact that God is in this the fact that God is right there should just remind us, at times we can be in the middle of God's will and there's gonna be some difficulties in life. Because if your mind said is, okay, things are going really well, that must mean I'm walking with the Lord. Things are not going well, that must mean I'm in the middle of some just awful disobedience. That's, that's not truly good theology. Because we could go through so many passages. I mean, we could have a series that could go for months and months of people that were right in the middle of God's will and went through tremendous difficulty. You could go through things like Jacob, who finally obeys God, finally submits to God, and what does God do? He literally beats him up and cripples him for life. Jesus feeds 5,000 and sends his 12 disciples into the middle of a storm. He says, go over to the other side of the lake. Jesus knows there's a storm there. So you have the 12 in a boat, rowing, hungry, exhausted, probably angry with each other. They're thinking, why don't we just turn around? We're in the middle of the storm. They're right in the middle of God's will. That was obedience. Disobedience would have been their home around a warm fire, bellies full, swapping stories about the feeding of the 5,000. Sometimes to be right in the middle of difficulties and trouble, that's right where God wants you to be. But I think we have this mindset, and it's the craziest mindset of, 
I want things to go kind of easy in life and kind of smooth because that means I'm in God's will. And there's a name for that. I'll tell you what the name is here in just a moment. Let me say that I'm always uncomfortable if I'm in a small group of people and they say, hey, let's just get to know each other. Let's go around and let's share our name and our favorite movie. And I hear that and I go, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Because I don't know if I should be honest or not. Because there are certain answers that are, that are just the right answers for guys. I mean, if you're asked that, you need to say, well, one of the Marvel movies or Gladiator or The Matrix or Braveheart, those are guy answers, right? However, if I'm honest, my favorite movie, I want to take a step of faith here, is The Sound of Music. I just lost all the guys, but the women love me now. It's a trade-off. I'll take it. It's, it's a great story, isn't it? I mean, it's incredible. I mean, the music, the dancing, I don't want to get too into that, but anyway, I mean, just the story of the Captain and Marie and, you know, will they or won't they? And there's finally that scene in which they finally declare their love for each other and they, they, you know, that they embrace, they kiss, they realize, okay, we do love each other. And then if I'm watching it and my wife is there, she'll say, J just leave the room because I don't want to hear your rant. Because when they finally, you know, that's, there's that big scene, Maria sings the worst song ever written in the history of the world. That's not a, I mean, it's so bad. Maria sings this song. She says this. I'm sure most of you know these words. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. You see, that's sound of music theology. Something great is happening in my life, that means I've done something good to deserve this. Something bad is happening in my life, that means I'm obviously not in the middle of God's will. That is sound of music theology, it's craziness. Listen, you might be in the midst of pain right now, you might be in the midst of heartache, you might be in the midst of attack on social media, you might be in the eyes of so many people that are trying to take you down, life might be incredibly painful right now, and you could be right in the middle of God's will. And you could be living on easy street right now, and your job is going well, and you're making money, and you feel like everybody loves you, and you could be out of God's will. Don't ever equate the way your, you know, just the way your life goes with, yes, that means that I'm in the midst of God's will. Those things are not equated. That's sound and music theology. That's the theology that says, well, I must have done something good because finally things are going great in my life. Oh, I found a parking place right next to the grocery store. Thank God I had my quiet time this morning. I mean, that's not the way God works. That's not the way God thinks. That's not the way God works. This week I spent some time actually uh, in a powerful psalm, in Psalm 116, which talks about tears and affliction and stumbling and distress and anguish. And that psalm teaches us so clearly. Christianity teaches that God comes out of heaven and into your pain. We do not come to God on the other side of our pain. God comes to us in our pain, right? He's right there. God understands our pain and he's right there for us. Number eight, and I can make this very, very short. I love the fact that leaders watch each other's backs. 
26 times in chapter 3, there's a little word that's used in the Hebrew, and the word is translated next to. This team is working next to this team, and this person is working next to this person 26 times. And we're going to learn as we go on that they're starting to work on the project with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other hand. Why? Because there's threats against the project. There are these antagonists that are trying to bring the project down. And so each, person, each person's role is, hey, you're not just going to build the wall. You're going to watch the back of the person next to you. You're going to make, you're going to make sure that they're not attacked from the blind side. And you're going to have a sword to make sure that we are all safe. We're next to each other. We're guarding each other's backs. Listen, we need to guard each other's backs as a true community of Christ. Watch your pastor's backs. Watch the staff's backs. Make sure that there aren't out there antagonists trying to bring everybody down. They're always out there. Protect one another. Just have that mindset of, hey, don't go after people in my community because I've got their back. Nehemiah makes that very, very clear. We are next to each other. And then nine at the very end here, it's so, so powerful. Be motivated by the gospel. It's so powerful. Everything in chapter three, and we could go on and on on this, everything in chapter three ultimately points us to Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Jesus acted in humility. He washed the feet of his disciples. He was one who was always willing to work. Jesus was despised and rejected by the antagonists, we're told in Isaiah 53. Jesus was crucified on a dunghill, John 19. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Our righteousness and justification came about because of the zeal of the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is watching our backs. He is closer than a brother. Jesus is the rebuilder of broken walls and broken dreams. It's interesting, at the very start, we talked about D-Day. And I'm sure that lots of you here knew June 6, 1944, right? Now, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you to be honest. If you know the answer, don't scream it out. Just raise your hand. How many of you know the date of VE Day? Okay, I see two hands. How many of you know the date of VJ Day? VJ Day. One. Why? The war officially ended in Europe on VE Day. That's the day we officially won the war. We won the war in Japan on VJ Day. Why don't we know those dates? VE Day is May 8, 1945. VJ Day is August the 15th, 1945. Why, why don't we know those dates? That's the day we won the war. Because practically we won the war on D-Day. It was practically won on D-Day. It was formally, officially won on VE Day and VJ Day. Now listen to this. The cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus, that's our D-Day. That's D-Day. One day when Jesus comes back, That'll be our VE day. That's, that's our victory day. We haven't officially, finally won, but we practically won on the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. We live in this amazing period where there's still gonna be some battles, there's still gonna be some hard things in life, but the battle was won at the cross of Jesus Christ and the victory of the resurrection. That should give everybody here hope 
and confidence for what lies ahead in your life. Because the victory is ours. Everything in Nehemiah 3 points to Jesus. Everything. And Jesus reminds us that you can have hope this day because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because of what is he has accomplished for you. Would you please stand with me? And let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we're so encouraged by the fact that our D-Day was the cross and the resurrection. That's our D-Day. We know that there are still some hard things in this life. There's still sin. There's still things we have to overcome. But Father, we thank you that the victory and the great hope that we can have was accomplished on that day. May we live in that hope this day, this week, this year. Father, we thank you that the word of God is absolutely true. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that the Red Sea really did part. The sun really did stand still. The ax head really did float. Manna really did rain down. The walls really were built in only 52 days. And Jesus Christ did rise up from the grave, overcoming death. Father, may we live in these promises that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. May we hold on to that. And may there be encouragement and hope in our hearts as we go forth with your blessing. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.